studying uh, this up to me, and so I want to share this with you. And, and one that uh, I think will be very helpful to us as a church, the family aspect of our church. So simply just going to call this Paul's prayer for his partners, because I couldn't think of any other words that start with P that would uh, get into that sentence there. Let's read God's Word together, and uh, even you'll find some similarities between what Ryan read for us in 1 John, and now what Paul says to the Philippians in verse number 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless His, bless his Word as it's not only read, but preached and, and explained. Father, thank You for these words. Wonderful words of life. We simply ask that you would speak, O Lord, as we come to you. Receive the food of your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're familiar, if you're familiar with the book of Philippians and with Paul and his writings here, even in just what we looked at in the first few verses, uh, it is quite obvious to say, and a very uh, obvious statement to make, that Paul had a very close relationship with the Philippian church. What's interesting is if we look at the background, as we looked at in the first uh, first week, uh, back in Acts 16 and Acts 20, I think it is, uh, we don't really have a lot of background on how many times Paul visited the church in Philippi. Uh, we don't know uh, how much time he had actually spent with them during these visits. If we put a few facts that we do have together, it doesn't seem to be that Paul spent a whole lot of time with them. As far as I can count, there was only two um, two recorded visits to, to Philippi, possibly more, but two that are given to us in Scripture. And the longest recorded time that uh, in the Scriptures that Paul spent anywhere was two years in Ephesus. So, at the most, he hasn't spent that much time at once with them, and he's only been there at least twice. And yet there is this bond between Paul and the Philippians. We're not just talking about the bond that the Philippians had within their church, which I think was great. But it's, in, it's between Paul and this church that he helped start that there's just this closeness. There's this intimacy. And we're going to see that uh, played out in the way that Paul begins this letter to them. And I have to ask the question, how could they be so close? What was it that brought Paul, a, a foreigner, to their lands with brand new ideas about God and about, uh, about how worship should be done? And in just a short amount of time, 
uh, he is writing and, and, and speaking about of a relationship that has already been established that is more than we're, we're on a first name basis. Or I'm, I'm fond of those people. I always enjoy a trip to Philippi and I catch up with those people. There's something deeper going on. There's something far, far uh, more special going on as Paul writes. And so I want to just walk, uh, we'll just jump right into it and walk through these statements that Paul makes about the Philippians, and then glean some of the things that can be gathered from these statements. And there will be more, uh, surely, to be discussed at another time. First of all, Paul says, I think of you often. He says there right away in verse number 3 there, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul has pleasant memories of the Philippians. Uh, if you, those of you who have been in this church for a, a good length of time, and you remember names of the past, and people that used to belong to this church, and whether by uh, moving away or by the Lord taking them home, uh, they are no longer with us. But when those names get brought up, it brings back pleasant memories. It brings back times that, that you have conversations that you had with them. It brings back uh, memories of maybe worshiping together or uh, doing something at their home, having meals together with them or, or working alongside them or suffering with them or whatever it may be. And Paul had these types of memories with the Philippians. And every time he thought of them, he prayed for them and he thanked God for them. And this thinking led to thanking on behalf of the Philippians. And the thanking led to rejoicing. As Paul would think of them, he would thank God for what God had done in them and, and between them, and that caused them to rejoice. Now, if you want to take some time this afternoon or this week and look at some of the other, Paul's other letters, you can read Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, and Paul says very nearly the same things about these people as he does the Philippian church. So it really wasn't an, an exclusive relationship that Paul had only with the Philippians, but with several churches that he had helped to start, that he had poured his life into, and felt like he had birthed them. He was their father. He was their, he was the, the one that, that, that brought them, not just I came and I started a church with a bunch of Christians, but I, I came to a place where there were a bunch of pagans and I showed them the gospel and I was the one that got to lead them to Christ and, and grow them in the faith. And he feels like a father to many of them. But, but uh, just, just staying with the Philippians uh, idea here, Paul is thinking about them, which leads him to thank God for them, which leads them to rejoice. And remind you, where is Paul when all of this is going on? In prison. Paul is in prison in, uh, in, in, in for, had been for quite some time as he's writing these things, and Paul could find joy in prison because of the memory that he had of these dear Philippian people. Now, why is Paul thinking, thanking, and rejoicing? Well, we see he lists these two reasons. I'll give them to you, and then we'll explain them a little bit each. First, because of continual fellowship, and second, because of a certain continuing sanctification. A continual fellowship and continuing sanctification. Look at verse number five. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he thinks about them, he thanks God for them, and rejoices because, first of all, their continual partnership from the first day until now. This word partnership 
is that, that Greek word koinonia. And I know many of you are familiar, at least with the term, with the idea, koinonia. And it's, a, it's sometimes referred to as fellowship or translated as fellowship. Here, it is translated as a partnership. Koinonia is very simply a close association uh, involving mutual interests or in, involving sharing. So that's why we talk about fellowship. But fellowship sometimes in today's terms uh, just means having food together. Having a, a talking about sports or something like that, but Paul goes much, much deeper with this term koinonia. And it's not just that they experienced it once, but it's a continued thing because he says, we've had this koinonia, this partnership, this fellowship from the very first day. From the moment the church was planted, we experienced this koinonia. And probably not as deep as they did at the time of this writing, but it's always been there. From the first day until now, there has been a strong gospel partnership. And this relationship is centered in the gospel. See, the Philippians had produced spiritual fruit. If we, if you just peek ahead to chapter 2 and look at verse number 16, we see that one of Paul's concerns as a church planter, as a missionary, as an evangelist, was that, that he would have labored in vain. In, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 16, he says they're uh, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul did not want to have wasted his time uh, preaching to people who would have not shown spiritual fruit. And so, when a church did begin to show this fruit of, of repentance and fruit of righteousness and the fruit of the Spirit, that encouraged him. And that led him to give thanks and to rejoice because he knew that what he had done had, had worked. God had actually used him to do something great. Now, I'm sure that Paul would have been faithful had he been called to be a prophet like Jeremiah to preach to people who are not going to believe. Or like Isaiah. But, but, but hear how much more wonderful it is to know that where you're going, the people are going to receive it. Not everybody, but there's going to be a group of people. They're going to, they're going to embrace it. They're going to agree with it. They're going to say, that's, that's, that's for us. And we want to be a part of that. And, and, and this church of, of Philippi, uh, was fruitful in this way. And that got, uh, brought Paul great rejoicing. Now, let's just think a little bit more about this idea of continued fellowship. Because, as I mentioned, Paul was writing this from jail. Now, if we, if we use the book of Acts to fill in some of the blanks, we know that for at two or more years, two plus years, Paul was in a, a prison in Caesarea with no trial. You can read about that in Acts 24. Following that imprisonment, he was in the Roman jail waiting to see Caesar. Uh, and that was for, at this time, it would have been for an unknown time. He, he had no idea when he was going to get to see Caesar, when he was actually going to stand trial. And we, you can read in Acts 28 that it ended up being two more years. And it is believed that it was during this imprisonment that Paul writes to the Philippians. So get into Paul's frame of mind. I've been in prison. I'm now currently in prison. Don't know how that's going to end up for me. And he'll even talk about that in a later letter to the, uh, in his later uh, part of the letter here to the Philippians. I don't know how it's going to turn out for me. It could end up well. It could end up in death. Uh, but Paul is rejoicing. Now, during this time, there were a lot of enemies of Paul. I think Paul is a very polarizing individual. Some absolutely loved the man. And some were glad that he was in prison. Some were his enemies. And these were men who claimed to be Christians. Look down in uh, chapter 1 and verse 17. And we'll, when we get down to this, we'll spend some more time looking at it. But look at what he says in verse number 17 there. 
Well, let me back it up to verse number 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, those who are preaching from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here in prison for the defense of the gospel. The former, that's those who preach from envy and rivalry, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, listen, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. There were people who were delighted that Paul was in prison so that they could be the big shots now. This was the man who was preaching the truth, but they didn't like the man Paul. And so now that he's in prison, they can shine. They can be the leaders in the Christian community. They can grab the attention and the adoration of the, of the churches uh, in the area. And so these people are, are, are even saying things in order to try to make Paul's imprisonment worse than it actually uh, than it needed to be. And so Paul is deserted by many. We have other places where Paul tells us that everybody's deserted him. And, and nobody will have anything to do with him except the Philippian church. The Philippian church stayed loyal to him. They were loyal, committed partners in the gospel from the very first day up until now. And that's one of the wonderful things about the gospel fellowship that Christians enjoy is a committed uh, relationship between people. It doesn't matter if you're doing well or if it's advantageous for me to be, to know you or to be known by you. I'm committed to you. And it doesn't matter if I'm, if, if I'm popular or unpopular, you're committed to me because, not because of, of, of what it's going to do for you, but because of a gospel-centered relationship. Now, just quickly, I want to think about some practical ways of what a gospel relationship or a gospel partnership looks like. We'll see some of them in Philippians and kind of get a preview of what's going to come. And and then in others, we'll, we, we may have to just jot them down and write them elsewhere. But I, I want you to understand that the Philippians supported Paul with every opportunity they had and with every resource they had. And the, 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 the relationship, this fellowship that the Philippians enjoyed was more than sentiment. It was more than some intangible thing, a feeling that they had. It was real and practical. So let me just, let's just walk through a couple of these ways that they enjoyed a gospel partnership. First of all, we see that they, they enjoyed a gospel partnership through suffering. If you look at over in chapter 4 and verse 14, Paul says that um, it was kind of you to share my trouble. They had, they had uh, uh, taken this as, them, as their own trouble. They were sharing, they were koinonia-ing this trouble that Paul had, shared through suffering. Now we can see that by the way that they shared the trouble, but we also see, in, and back in verse number 7, that they stood with Paul in his imprisonment. So it wasn't that they were loyal fans of Paul when he was on top of his game. They were loyal fans when Paul was in the dungeon waiting for execution. Secondly, we see that a gospel partnership uh, is uh, through laboring and striving together. We see in verse number 7, he says, in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So they're not they're, they're in the front lines with Paul. But then look down in verse 27 of chapter 1 as well. He talks about, uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there was a, there was a, a, a mutual labor going on here. They, they were, they were partnered through labor and through striving together. Thirdly, uh, thirdly, we see that they were partnered through financial giving. Look in chapter 2 and verse 25. 
Paul says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Now keep that in mind, that why we're bringing this out is that Epaphroditus was the messenger that the Philippian church had sent to Paul bearing a gift of money. And this was not the only time that they did it, but they had sent Epaphroditus with this gift of money. If you look back over in chapter 4, and we looked at verse 14, but let's, we'll read a little bit further and see what, what he's talking about, that they shared in his trouble. And he says in verse 15, you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So this church was partnering through with Paul, not in just sentiment, but in with money. They put their, they put their money where their mouth is, if you will. They, they labored with him. They suffered with him. They partnered through financial giving. Back in chapter 1 and verse 19, we see that they partnered through prayer. They prayed for him. Verse 19, he just simply says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance. They partnered through prayer. And finally, as we mentioned, the, 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 the coming of Epaphroditus to bring the money was not just a financial gift, but there was a personal care. There was a, there was a, 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 an added blessing that Epaphroditus was the one that was coming. He wasn't just there to drop off money and leave. They weren't just dropping it into the mail and, and sending it on. They were delivering it so that Epaphroditus also might be there to comfort him. He became the representative that would go to Paul and not only bring him money that would cheer him, but be that source of encouragement in and of himself. And we see that he has many good things to say about Epaphroditus in chapter 2. And eventually he sends Epaphroditus back because he needed Timothy with him and he knew that Epaphroditus needed to be back with the church because they had missed him and were worried about him. But this is many different facets, if you will, of gospel partnership. And we don't have time to, uh, unless we're going to stop here and not get any further, but uh, let me encourage you to, to think through those, that, those practical ways tonight uh, in our study, or if, or if you use the, the back sheet on your own this week just as some study questions, thinking about how we as a church partner in the gospel, not just with each other. But think about our missionaries and how we partner with our missionaries. I, I read a statement uh, that came, uh, it's on the back of your, of your bulletin, tonight's notes, but it said, it is never money wasted when we send people to encourage missionaries as well as provide them with financial support. Now, it's, it's easy for churches to just send off money, but the added, the added facets of not just sending you money, but sending you people to encourage you and, 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 and laboring alongside you and doing the work with you and helping you and then being there when they suffer. And all of these different facets lead to a type of relationship that Paul has with the Philippians, one that is intimate and caring and loving. Notice the second reason that he gives there, we must hasten, verse number six, is because of continuing sanctification. The fellowship that, that, that they had was the evidence that Paul used to believe that God had truly begun a work in them. We can't know who is truly regenerate. I can't look in your heart and know for sure that you are of God. Uh, I, there, there have been many times, and if you've been in church at any length of time, you know that there are people that for a time, as Jesus said, they're the type of, of ground that the seed sprouts, but there's no root in them, and, and they're quickly gone. 
and we've grown to love these people, and we've grown to serve alongside them, and all of a sudden they're gone, and they they don't believe in God anymore. They don't believe in they didn't believe in anything, and they turn their back on all that they believe, and that hurts. But the thing that we do have to look at one another and and have that hope of a regenerated heart to know that they that to, to, as much as a human being can know that they truly are in Christ is to see the fruit in their life. The fruit of the Spirit. That's why it's so important that we bear these things because it's, 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 it's evidence to others and to ourselves that we are of God. But Paul looks at this evidence and is convinced then that God did begin a work in them. And notice what he says. And the emphasis is not here on the beginning of the work, but on the continuation of the work. He says there, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, a few things we need to notice about that. This means, first of all, that God began the work. They didn't begin the work. God did. If you think about how God brought Lydia, it says, the Lord opened her heart to believe. God began the work in her. Uh, when The Philippian jailer, it took an earthquake for the Philippian jailer to come to Christ. But God did that. God began the work, which means that the good work was not always in them, and it was not initiated by men. But secondly, and more to Paul's point here, is that the work that God began, God will complete. It is not up to you to complete the work of salvation in your life. It is not up to you, by yourself, to complete the word of sanctification in your life. God began, and God will complete. He will perfect it, which means then that the work of sanctification will not fail in a believer's life. If you are truly in Christ, God will complete the work He started in you. Which is so important when we start to begin to think how many times we fail even after we've come to Christ. How many times have you fallen and given in to sin and to temptation and done the things that your heart condemns you for? Verses like these are reminding us God will finish what He started. And it is not on me. It is on God. Now, there is a responsibility that I have that we'll get into that as we get to the end of the chapter. But if you want to look at Galatians 3 and verse 3, you see the parallel opposite, where the Galatians began to believe that God got them started. They needed to finish it out. And Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer is no. No, you're going to be perfected by the same one who began it in you. God began the work because God alone will get the glory. If you get a little bit of the glory, then then something is wrong because God alone gets the glory for the work of salvation, the work of sanctification, and the ultimate glorification of His people. Justification is God's work. Sanctification is God's work. And self-glorification is God's plan. God will be glorified. And see, the gospel is more than how to get saved. If you're here and you don't know that Christ is, is the Savior and that you've not been born again in Him, sometimes we think that the gospel stops when that person comes to Christ. They've, they've, they've been saved now, but the gospel is more than that. The gospel, God is not just interested in keeping you out of hell. God is first interested in glorifying Himself, and He does that through the salvation and redemption of fallen, dead sinners and the sanctification of those people to begin to look more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. So, the Paul's relationship with the Philippians gave him cause for thanksgiving and for praising at what God had done and was doing in their lives. And it gave him a confident hope 
of God's accomplished salvation in them and His continuing sanctification. Look at verse number 7. We see the next statement here is, I hold you in my heart. The next few are not as long as this one. Verse number 7, he says there, I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers of gra- with me of grace. This koinonia that Paul has isn't just something in his head. It's not just a knowledge that he has. It's not just bland and, 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 and lifeless. No, it's, it's, there's, there's emotion there. Sometimes people fall so, so far on the emotion side that there's no head knowledge. There's no, there's no real uh, knowledge and discernment, as he'll get into later on. But we can also abandon the feelings and only about knowledge and, and, and discernment. And there's no feeling there. Imagine if, ladies, if your husband, he only, you know, he had a knowledge of you and, and, he, and he loved you because of that, but there was no emotion there. I love you. Why? Because I do. You know, I don't, because I have to. Or, you know, whatever. You know, that, that, that's not, there's no feeling there. We want some emotion. But we also don't want emotion with no knowledge. You gotta have a balance. And we see here, this statement here shows that there was first a, a, a koinonia because of their partnership in the gospel, but secondly, a, a, a heart feeling for the sharing or the partaking of grace. This word partnership and then now the word partaker have similar meanings. They're not the same word, but they do have some similar meanings. And and Paul says here that you are partakers with me of my grace or of the grace with me. And there's some discrepancies on exactly how that should be worded there. Now, when Paul is talking about grace, I think often we think about the grace of justification, like we talked about grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, Paul seems to equate grace with his own ministry. He's not just simply talking about leaving it at justification. Hey, you're partners with me in the same grace that I have in order to be saved. But he says, you're partners with me, partakers of grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So this 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 connection here gives us a little bit more of an idea of what Paul is intending by saying grace. The, the Philippians here had stood with Paul in these good times and bad times. They were involved on the front lines with him, both supporting him and participating with him. And as they served and suffered together, their relationship grew and it grew deeper and more, more special, and more intimate. And Paul could say, I hold you in my heart. You're dear to me. You're special to me. Because of the, the partaking you share with me in grace. Paul's relationship with the Philippians was strengthened by shared service and suffering. Third, fourthly, he says, he says, or maybe that's thirdly, he says, I desire to be with you. Verse number eight. It kind of sounds the same thing, but listen to what Paul is saying. And, and if you can I, I, isolate these verses and try to imagine how it might sound uh, from coming from another person there, verse number 8. Uh, let me find verse number 8 here because my, my eyes aren't looking at it, right? For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I yearn for you. I long to be with you. I can't bear to be without you. This is more than a, hey, I miss you guys. It'd be great if we ever got to see each other again. No, Paul's like, I, I yearn for you. I want to be with you. And he says here, God is my witness. God knows it is true. And if we were to isolate just that, that phrase from what this, the context here, it sounds like Paul's this heartsick lover 
who, who his, he's missing his, his wife, or he's, 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 a, he's a, 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 an amorous teenager who, who misses his girlfriend, who's gone away, and, and, he, and he yearns to be with her. But the affection that Paul has is not this worldly, physical, uh, uh, temperamental affection. He says the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loved the church in Philippi with an affection of Christ. There was this physical feeling that Paul had, but it wasn't worldly. It wasn't, it wasn't, um, it was quite appropriate, if I can just explain it like that, that, that Paul had for these people. He loved the ladies in the church and the men in the church, and not in, in, a, in a worldly way, but in a, as a sister in the Lord and as a brother in the Lord. And, and, and he could say, I yearn to be with you. I mean, I want to be with you right now. And it would make, make, it would make me no happier than if I could just be with you all right now in a genuine love for the Philippian church that was pure and holy. And we see Paul's relationship now causes him to long for their company. And finally then, he kind of started off with prayer. We see how all of this relationship now ends in prayer. And because of this relationship now, Paul says, I pray for you. Look at verse number nine. Verse number nine, he says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this relationship, this love, this koinonia led Paul to pray for them. And this relationship shaped his prayers. So they kind of worked hand in hand. The relationship led him to pray for them, the prayers deepen the relationship, and it went back and forth. But note how Paul prays for the Philippians. And, and, and let me encourage you to consider the way that you pray for other people and compare it to the way that Paul is praying for these Christians. First of all, he prays that they would abound in love. This is a, a common request that Paul has for the churches for whom he prays. Uh, for instance, in, in Thessalonians, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness uh, in, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. That's First Thessalonians 3. And it's very similar to the prayer that he makes for uh, the, the Philippians here. I want you to grow in your love for one another. When you got married, those of you who are sitting, uh, you've been, you're married, you have, uh, for better or for worse, and, and you have the, the ring to prove it and all that stuff. When you got married, you were convinced that you love each other. And, and, and you just knew that this was the one, and I'm not saying you were wrong. But if you've been married for any length of time, you can look back on the love that you had for your spouse at the beginning, and it pales in comparison to the love you have for them now. Hopefully. You love them, and it means so much more. Why? Because you've gone through life with them. You've suffered together. You've shared things together. You've done life together, and you've, you've, you've walked this, this road of life together in the goods and the bads, for better or for worse, and you know what it means to love at a much deeper level with that, that person. And that's what Paul prays for them, that they would abound, overflow in love. Secondly, he prays that they will, if I can just combine all the rest that he says into two more, that they will make good choices and be good Christians. When he says make good choices, he says that with your love growing, I want your knowledge and your discernment also to grow. Once again, we have that, that, that healthy, mature 
relationship, it's not all feelings. It's got some discernment there. It's got some knowledge there that enables them to make good choices, but it's not heartless either. And this is where Paul is praying that they would grow in, in their knowledge and love and discernment, approving what is excellent. So making good choices. So, and then, then the other part of that, that they would be good Christians so that they would be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. And, and just to summarize all of that, we can just say that, that Paul prays that they would be the kind of people that they ought to be. That they ought to make the kind of the choices that they ought to make and be the kind of people that they ought to be. And finally, ultimately, this is what Paul wants. For God to be glorified and praised both in and through them as he finishes the, the prayer. To the glory and praise of God. Ultimately, this is why we want these things to happen. You will benefit from it as you abound in love and knowledge and discernment, but God will be praised because of it. Because of the work that He does within you. As I read through this, this, this intercessory prayer for their growth, this intimate desire to be together, this, all of these, these things that Paul has said about this church, I can't help but think about us, our church, my feelings for the church, your feelings for the church, your desires. It's very obvious then to say that Paul had a very close relationship with the Philippian church. Christ loves his church. You know that? Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, that great passage that is usually appropriated for marriage is first and foremost about the relationship that Christ has for His church. And it says there that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her. Is that sanctification? Having cleansed her by the washing of the, of the water with the Word. And, and as it goes down, He says, one of the reasons that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loved His church and Paul loved the church of Philippi with the affection of Christ. So I have to ask the question, do I love my church like this? Do you love your church? Do you love the church, the, the, the Catholic universal church, the, not the Roman Catholic church, but the universal Catholic church of saints of, uh, in all places and at every time in history, the brothers and sisters in the family of God? Do you love your church? But specifically this church right here, the people sitting in the pews with you, do you love this church? Do you thank God for this church and for the people specifically in this church? Do you long to be with the people of this church do you rejoice over the work that God has done in the people of this church? Do you serve and suffer with the people of this church? Do you have practical partnership with the people of this church? Do you pray for the people of this church? Let me ask you the question. And it's not good English, but it sounds easier to understand. You don't have to think too hard about it. Who do you pray for? Do you pray? I hope you do. Who do you pray for? Hopefully, we are part of your prayer list. Name by name by name. Let me ask the second follow-up then. How do you pray for us? Could we not use Paul's list here as a model and a template to pray for one another? Not just so we pray for so-and-so to get better from their sickness or that they find a job or that they start coming back to church, but we pray that they would grow in love and that they would grow in knowledge and discernment and that they would, uh, that they would uh, suffer along with us and that they would uh, be blameless and pure and make good choices and be good Christians and, and that God would be praised through the life of this individual person. 
fortuitously, I don't I mean, it wasn't by luck, I think God brought it to me at just the right time. I was sitting in the office yesterday doing some, doing some study and just preparation for what I was going to do, and an email popped up of an article, and the article was entitled this, How Would Paul Use His Church Directory? And the answer, in short, was he'd look for grace on every page. And I thought, well, that's interesting, I, so I read it, and it just spoke volumes to what I was understanding Paul was saying, and as I'm printing the directory out in the office. How would Paul use his church directory? If Paul had one of these directories, what would Paul do with it? And the answer, where did my church directory go? There it is. Paul wouldn't lose it, that's for sure. But Paul, what would Paul do with his church directory? He would use it to, to identify God's grace in the life of every person. So here's just a practical way that we can take uh, this relationship uh, that Paul talks about, and, and really deepen it in our own lives in just a few moments that we have left. Pull out this directory. That's why I want you to have one. I want to make sure it was there today. Take one of these home and consider the grace of God in every person's life on the page. That's why I like the pictures, so that it's not just a name. It's a face, and you can see that person. And, and you know what? Thank God that he saved them, because the person that you're looking at is was dead in their trespasses and sins, and God brought them to life. And the person that you're looking at is being renewed day by day but in the Spirit of God and is going has a certain and complete sanctification in their future. And they are going to be glorified and brought to heaven, and you're going to spend eternity with the face in that, in that picture there. Thank God for the grace of every stage of His work in a person's life. Rejoice and thank God for choosing them and for saving them and sanctifying them. A statement I read was, when Paul saw fruit in a church, he knew of only one explanation, that God produced it. And so thank God for it. And think that's why it's so important that we have deep relationships so that we know the work that God has done in people's lives. If all I know of you is a face and a name, and that you come and you sit in the same place every Sunday, and I know nothing else about you, how can I thank God for the work of grace He's done in you? But when I work with you and I suffer alongside you and I labor with you and in all of these, these different aspects, I can see the ups and the downs in your life as you see in mine. Celebrate God's grace in every member of our church. God has graciously given us the local church. I love the local church. I love this church. You know, when we were gone for, for, uh, for vacation, we were gone for a Sunday and then Something else happened and something else happened. It was, it was a few weeks before we could be back here. I missed being here. I missed seeing you. And I, and I hope that you feel the same way when, when you can't be here. You, something's wrong. Something's missing on your Lord's day because you're not where your family is. When we have communion, and, and, and sometimes if on a Sunday night and there's, there's not many people here, I miss you. Because there's something special. Last Sunday, having communion in the morning time and, and the, 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 the family was there. Everybody was here. And, and, you know, there's really not that many Sundays in a year when the entire church decides to come. But, you know, if that ever happened, we'd be sitting outside in the balcony and we wouldn't be talking about uh, capacities and percentages and all that stuff because we'd get in trouble. But, it, but when the majority of the family is here, oh, how that warms my heart. It fills me with joy. It fills me with a, a camaraderie that I'm not alone. And I'm not just with five brothers, but there's a, there's a bunch of us. God has given us the local church to so let us let us develop and deepen the relationships within it through our service, through our partnership, through our prayer, through our care for one another. What's that old song? 
They'll know that we're Christians by our love. May we love the church that Christ gave. Put us in. Jesus said in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Sometimes people mis- misquote that verse, and they, they say that Christians are supposed to love everybody. And they'll use this verse as their, as their basis for that, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that you're to love everybody. Now, I'm not saying that's a wrong idea, but what Jesus is saying is that they'll know you're Christians because you love other Christians. You love the brothers. You love one another. Paul's relationship with the Philippians affected the way he felt about them. And it shaped the way that he prayed for them. And in turn, the way Paul prayed for the Philippians affected the way that he felt about them and his relationship with them. So my prayer is this morning that God will bless us that same koinonia, that same fellowship, more than sentiment, but certainly not without it, more than a feeling, but certainly not heartless. May we grow together in love, abound in knowledge and in in discernment, that we would be good people, we'd be good Christians and make good choices, and that we would glorify God with the fellowship and the love that exists between us. Let's pray together. As we pray this morning, I want to ask you, do you love the church this way? Christ loved this church and He gave Himself to it. He gave Himself for it. He laid His own life down for His bride. He intercedes for that church. He builds that church. He cherishes His church. How do I feel about the church? How do you feel? Yes, are you strengthening the relationships that we have within the church? or the relationships that need to be repaired or attended to? Am I praying for Christ's church? My brothers and sisters by name, more than just mentioning their name, but really thinking about them, loving them in prayer and in care and in giving in all of the different ways. Or let me ask you, you even know what it means to be in Christ's church. Not in the building, but in Christ's church, and we pray that you would know the wonderful blessing of being born again into Christ's church. Father, we thank you that we have been given this wonderful gift, that you have given us the gift of these other wonderful people. As is brought out through different places in the New Testament, there are people in the room that we might not have ever had reason to be around or to, to know or to, to stand together with, and yet we have been brought together by the blood of Christ. And together we stand in this, this area. We stand for righteousness and we stand for truth and we stand against uh, uh, the, the, the compromise and the sin in this world. And we know that all around the world there are brothers and sisters doing the same thing in their local context. Thank you for putting us here. Thank you for bringing people to us. And I pray that you will continue to add to your church as you, as you would choose. I pray that you would keep us here. That we might have strong commitments that would be able to last the 
offenses, the, the words that are taken out of context and misunderstood, and the feelings that get hurt, the faults against one another, that our commitment to one another and to your church would be strong enough to weather those storms. And Lord, if you, should, uh, if you should tarry, then that for the rest of our lives, we will be faithful to this body of believers. Or if you bring us to another place, that we might find that same body of believers in that new place and grow and connect with them. Ultimately, it's not about our building a church here. It's about bringing praise and glory to You, and we desire that above all else. Help us then in these, in these very practical ways. Love the church that You gave Your life for. For those who are here that may not know that they are in the family. Lord, we pray that the Spirit that brought a new work to us would begin at work in them, and that we might be able to be there with them and for them and help them along this sanctifying road as others have done for us. We pray that You would be lifted up, honored in our service. But not just in our service, in our lives, in our fellowship. May You be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.